Verse 1, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him, Jesus. They watched Jesus closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then Jesus said to them, these are the Pharisees. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then immediately the the Pharisees went out and plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idium or Idumea and beyond the Jordan. Words are hard. Don't judge me. And those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how things or how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples or yes. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. And to have power to heal the sick uh, or to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he called the sons of thunder. Verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canite and Judas Iscariot, whom also betrayed him. And they went into a house. I grew up in a a church that had a young man uh, that attended that church. His name was Kenny. And throughout most of grade school and then even throughout middle school, Kenny was really a staple at the weekend church gathering. Uh, He he lived far from the church uh, that gathered that I was a part of that, that situated itself in the suburbs. He lived far from that. He grew up in the heart of the city of Washington, D.C., in a community that was known more for for things that you probably wouldn't want your neighborhood known for. It was known for poverty and for crime. It was called Anacostia. And a man from his community in the heart of the city, his name was Mr. Warren, as they called him. He owned a large 15-passenger van that was not much to look at. In fact, it was the kind of car that when you started it, black smoke came billowing out of the back of it as it it came back to life. Uh, But he drove that that old van because what he could do is he could throw... 14 children inside of that van each weekend to then drive them out of the small closed community that they found themselves living in and and drive them out of the city and into a completely different world that they call the suburbs. He wanted to drive them into a safer place where they could just be kids, where they could run and they could play, but also a place separate from the impoverished cycles that, that they lived in, separate from that, a place where they could also meet Jesus. Now, Kenny was one of the young people uh, that didn't ever seem to miss that van ride out of the projects. Every weekend, he'd show up at our church. 
And his home life was really interesting, this young boy, Kenny. He was adopted by a single mom who took in foster kids who had special needs. So for Kenny, Kenny was born with a withered hand. Uh, for his brother, Sylvester, he was born deaf. He had a sister who was both deaf and blind. There were 11 kids in all that this single mom took care of. For Kenny, at the end of each Sunday gathering, when everyone was leaving, as worship had finished and people were beginning to disperse, Kenny would make his way to the front of the sanctuary where he'd find the church elders. And each Sunday, for as long as I can remember, Kenny would ask them to pray for his withered hand. They'd take the time to anoint his head. And then the little boy's hand. And if you stood and watched, you'd see, because his eyes were closed so tightly, there was little lines and wrinkles on the side of his face. When they'd finish, you'd know it because he'd shout amen. And then you'd always see him lift his lifeless hand up and begin to shake it, expecting that life would come back to it. He had such anticipation, so much faith. And remember as a little boy watching week after week, month after month, it was year after year that I'd see Kenny at the front of the church, eyes clenched so very tightly, and then the hand that he'd shake to see if life was restored to what was lifeless, to what was withered. Remember as Kenny and I got older and his middle school hit, I remember watching him and thinking from a distance, oh, Kenny, what don't you understand? I even remember thinking, Kenny, why are you so naive? that you keep coming back week after week. It's just Jesus. Kenny, I don't know what you expect. It's just Jesus though. Just Jesus. When will you stop? When will you learn? Or, or why, why don't you see that it's just Jesus that you're coming to right now? For me now though, I look back and I cringe because it wasn't Kenny that failed to see Jesus as he truly was. It was me. It was my familiarity to Jesus that caused me to see him as less than he was because he's never just Jesus. In Mark's autobiography of Jesus, he masterfully presents a contrast of two different groups of people, specifically two very, very different reactions to Jesus. The first is recorded in Mark chapter 3, that opening vignette where he heals this man of a withered hand. But what you finish by looking at is, is the Pharisees seeking not only to discredit Jesus, but they're now determined that they will go out and destroy Jesus. Whereas the very next story... It shows us broken creation flocking to him to be touched and restored by him. Do you notice that Mark leaves no middle ground in Jesus' audience? It's as if heaven didn't intend for middle ground to even be an option. It was one extreme or the other. They're either pressing him so closely that they're crushing him or they're leaving, walking away, determined to find a way to destroy him. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote about this very idea in his book, Mere Christianity. He said it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent someone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Here's that thing, the foolish thing. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus has said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg 
or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He has not intended to. You see, there's intention even in the way that Mark structures this section of of his autobiography of Jesus, where he's wanting you to see a contrast, that there's no middle ground for anyone who came in contact with Jesus, who had an encounter with him. They're either destined, determined to destroy him, or they're determined to make their way to him, to be made whole and well. But my friends, for us, we have to slow down and say, But has he become something in between there? Has he become something separate from those two options? Has he become just Jesus to me? Just Jesus. And and we won't slow down to take a deep dive into what it says here, introducing us to Jesus' followers, because it's something we spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus calling his disciples. We talked about what it looked like to be invited to follow him, what, what that invitation would have meant to a person. But we also talked about what he was really inviting them into. Remember, Jesus would flip the script on the cultural norm when he's calling these disciples in at least two ways. The first was the how he would do it, that he wasn't waiting for them to beg and plead with him. Give us the honor of following you, Jesus. No, instead, he makes himself vulnerable, puts himself out there, invites them to follow him. There's no more vulnerable an invitation, though, than Jesus naked on a cross, suffering and dying for us. Making a way, inviting us to be made right with the Father. So very vulnerable that you could still reject him. It would be the way that he would always approach people. It wasn't just the how that was so different. It was also the who that he called. He didn't go to the rabbinic schools of the day looking for the most qualified of individuals. Instead, he would go into the workforce to people that had already been passed over. And when you look at the list of people here, you need to know that some of these are blue collar and some of these are white collar individuals. That they make up both sides of a very polarizing political spectrum. This is a very eclectic group. It's like Jesus and the DMV are the only two places or the only two entities that can get these kinds of people together on the same page. And the only reason we're this way at the DMV, such a mixing pot of an eclectic group, is because we have to be there and then we feel a camaraderie because we both complain about the process of having to be there. But with Jesus, he brought people together with peace and unity and harmony. The most diverse of people is what it's demonstrating here. And as we previously discussed, to be invited to follow him was an invitation for transformation. He transformed the lives of these men be an invitation to carry on a legacy, and they would do that dying martyrs' deaths. And it would be an invitation to relationship. It says it in verse 14, that when he appointed the 12, he did it that they might be with him and they might be sent out by him to preach the gospel. He invited them first to know him. And then after that, long before he'd asked them to do anything, he first wanted them just to be with him long before he'd even asked them to talk about him. Remember, God's great goal for you is not just to go be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. It's that you would be a child of God, that you would be adopted as his own. Okay, now what a contrast though. No middle ground for people who actually encountered Jesus there in the first century, either determined to destroy him or willing to drop everything to be with him. 
But Mark's narrative then will take this little interesting turn, and this is what we'll spend our time on, and it won't be long. But we'll spend our time looking at the little interesting turn in the narrative where it introduces us to the small minority group of people who see Jesus as just Jesus, who occupy the middle ground between either the ones who are trying to destroy him or the ones who are determined to get to him, believing that he could rescue and save them. There's a stark contrast from the multitudes and these people's response to Jesus that we'll read in just one moment. This tiny little a subset of society that, that was neutral in a sense that saw him as just Jesus. And I want you to see who these people are, but I want you to really consider why is it that they came to see Jesus this way? So if you'd read with me, beginning in verse 20, it says, then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Remember before Jesus is being pressed from every side so that he feels like I, I, I feel suffocated by these guys. So get a boat ready in case we have to bail quickly and now it's to the point where there's, there's people there around the clock wanting to hear Jesus, wanting to be healed by him so much so they can't even sit down and have a meal. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he's casting out these demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against that kingdom, it cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of man, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has this unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came to him, standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. The passage we just read is something theologians refer to as a Markin sandwich, which forgive me, we're going to get nerdy for a moment here, but maybe you've unknowingly even stumbled on these before. If you've read through Mark's gospel where you're maybe reading and, and what you'll notice happens is, is you're reading through a section of his gospel and maybe you found that this is true, that Mark is telling a story and then he interrupts himself with a different story midway through it and then he go, goes back to the original story. Well, if you've ever noticed that, then you've tasted of the Markin sandwich, as theologians refer to it. It's Mark using this popular, poetic, creative writing style from his day that you'll find at least a dozen times throughout his gospel, his autobiography of the life of Jesus. Uh, there's a nerdier term than Markin sandwich, and it's intercalation literature, and we won't use that because that's really confusing. But a sandwich is imagery we can understand because everybody likes to eat. So the idea is that there's a grouping together of multiple layers, typically three. 
And the top and the bottom layers are both best understood by the flavor of the central layer. To understand what's going on, the idea is then you need to taste and understand the centerpiece, the middle of the story. It's the idea of a sandwich is defined not by the two pieces of bread on the outside. When someone asks you what kind of sandwich you're having, you don't say a wheat sandwich if it's wheat bread, even though the majority of it is wheat bread. You tell them this is a roast beef sandwich because the middle section, the flavor of it comes from there. And that's the idea of the Markin sandwich, this ancient writing style. And I think we even understand this in a modern setting because even films, a lot of films are kind of made and created creatively this way, where a movie will take maybe an opening scene where everything is chaotic and it's showing you details that don't seem to make sense. And then it will flash into a different setting where it'll hit rewind and, and, and show you the backstory maybe that gives you the understanding and clarity of how things opened in the movie. It's kind of like the original Bourne movie where Bourne starts, he's floating in the water and you don't know what's happening and he doesn't either and he doesn't have his memory and then you have flashes back into his past that help you to understand who this guy really is. It's Mission Impossible 3 where He's getting electrocuted at the start and, and he's strapped to a chair and you're like, why in the world is a movie starting here? And then it starts to give you the backstory and explain why and then it wraps up back in that same setting. It's Saving Private Ryan starting in Arlington National Cemetery and then flashing back to D-Day and the whole saga of World War II plays out and then it ends again there in that cemetery. We understand this idea of like, there's a story, but let me throw one right in the middle that's going to help you to understand the depth and the weight of this story. It's an ancient writing style, a technique that Mark will utilize here that's going to pull us in. That's the idea. Pull you in and then switch to another story quickly before concluding the first one. And that additional storyline is meant to give you greater and clearer understanding. Like meat in a sandwich is the source of the flavor that helps you to know what you're actually eating. If you look ahead just two chapters to chapter five, there's an obvious one where he, Jesus is going to heal Jairus's daughter, a 12-year-old little girl. And then he's interrupted by a woman who comes, who has incredible faith that Jesus can heal her. And it says that, uh, that there's this little moment there where it says that she's been sick for 12 years. And then it flips back to Jairus's daughter's story. It's almost like a toothpick through the sandwich is that theme of 12 years and of, of remarkable faith that seems to almost shock Jesus. It's in chapter four where Jesus starts the parable of the sower, of the seed, remember? And then he'll launch midway through it into an explanation of why he teaches in parables and then jumps right back into the description of that parable. It's something we've already seen. Remember in chapter two, where he heals the paralytic, it's he's lowered down, he addresses the man, and then he addresses the room about forgiveness, and then he flashes back to the man to show you that Jesus was not just here to heal a person's body, but that he could come and forgive a person's heart and their soul. It's a Sabbath sandwich where he sees the man with a withered hand and then there's the Sabbath controversy where he speaks to them right in the middle of it about how asking them, is it right to, to give life or to take it? Is it right to heal or to save on the Sabbath? And then flashes back. He, he's showing you that he's dismantling what they built. Remember that religious moralism, that system. And then in this story, it's Jesus approached by his family and then it flashes to his interaction with the religious leaders and then jumps right back to his interaction with his family. It's, it's telling you in this story though, the sandwich that, that Mark presents to us here is trying to define for us who's in and who's out in Jesus' family. 
You see, sometimes I think the headings in our Bible, though they can be really helpful, I think sometimes they can cause us to, to lose sight of maybe what the author's trying to tell us. And that can happen here, where the, there's a couple of different headings that kind of section this off that I don't think are very helpful here, because it really is just one story. Those headings aren't in the original manuscripts. They're not inspired by God. They are helpful in times. But this is one time where maybe it's not super helpful. You see, the story starts in verse 20, saying that his family came to him thinking that he's crazy. Literally, it's translated those uh, from the side of him. It's an idiom that's speaking of family. In verse 20, my new King James Bible says, the multitude came together so they could not eat so much as any bread, but when his own people, now many other translations, verse 21, will read that members of his own family or people of his own household. It's talking about his mom and his brothers show up. And then it'll flash from there to the Pharisees who come and say, we're not here because we think you've gone crazy. We're here because we think you're possessed by the devil. These are the religious insiders who it very quickly becomes very clear are the outsiders. They're the ones who should be in the know and well connected to what God is doing. And it's so clear that they're not. And then it flashes back to his family again. Verse 31, the literal translation is is literally, when those from the same womb as Jesus, and the term that's given the same womb, it's a masculine tense, it's tense, it's speaking of his brothers who are born of Mary. And what he does is he redefines who his family is. Jesus says his family are those who believe he comes from heaven with heaven's authority as heaven's answer to the world's brokenness. The toothpick holding it together, the centerpiece through those three pieces is all centered around the idea of who's in and who's out, who's in his family and who's not. Okay, now picture the scene, less nerdy. Picture the scene. Jesus has grown in popularity to where, I mean, he can't even sit down for a meal. It's getting out of hand. And his own people, his family have heard about it. And now they're showing up. Just picture the scene. This is a huge crowd around him. And now it's his mom and his brothers trying to push their way through. And word gets to him that they're here and they want to pull you away. In fact, they, they want to lay hold of him, it says at the beginning of this section. It's the same wording that will be used at the end of Jesus' story when they arrest him and take him by force in the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't miss this. Why did they come? Well, they came because they thought he's out of his mind. He's lost it. Jesus, he's, he's cracked under pressure. He, he's failed to see who he really is. They thought for sure that he was delusional and at some point he'd become for them an embarrassment over their home. And then it flashes to the second scene, the middle layer of the sandwich. And in our text, the the scribes join the party and they accuse Jesus not of losing his mind like his family did, but of being possessed by Beelzebub, of, of collaborating with the devil. Beelzebub, it's two Hebrew words squished together. The master of the house is what it means. They're saying that Jesus was possessed by the master of the demonic world. And some theologians will say, well, we think that's some Philistine, gnarly, demonic deity, some entity that they worshipped. And others would just say, no, it's very simply just saying here that they're accusing him of being possessed by Satan himself. And so Jesus responds to them and tells them a kingdom, a government, a family. It can fall apart from one of two things, either from an external attack or from an internal one. 
A house that's divided, a a kingdom that's divided against itself, it cannot stand. Jesus is making a point that, listen, Satan's too smart just to, to work against his own purposes, to attack his own agenda. No army attacks itself, but that's what they're accusing him of doing here. And Jesus will then explain that the forces of hell, they are losing power. They're losing their grip on creation, but it's not because of an internal squabble where they're fighting against each other, it's because of an an external attack. A different force is coming and is overthrowing the forces of darkness. Remember, he says, if a stronger man comes in and ties up the strong man, then the stronger man, Jesus, could overthrow the kingdom of Satan and plunder his goods. Now, this idea of strong man imagery, it's kind of lost on us. We don't know really what we should picture in antiquity, it, the idea maybe would have brought a couple of different things to mind. One of them might have been that, that during the Greek empire, um, copper became a money, a form of currency that they were using. And one of the things uh, that they would use to measure out uh, a weight of copper or a payment of copper was a talent. And a talent was about 60 pounds of copper. And an average man could carry that with some strain, but could carry that measurement a, a, a fair distance uh, with some ease at least. And so this is where even linguistically the play on the idea of talent, which was once a measurement, and it, which now means special ability. If someone was talented, then they could carry more than just that. Then they were a strong man. So to be a strong person is telling you that this is a person with great wealth or resources. Maybe that's part of where their minds would have shifted towards. Or it might have shifted towards the fact that ancient banking systems were not what they are today and they were definitely not federally insured. And so very few people would give their money to a banking system. Instead, the rich historians allude to this. They would hire a strong man to just come hang out in their house. Like come put armor on and just hang around the house because if someone comes to try to take our stuff, your job is you're basically my stuff's personal bodyguard. And so we're expecting you to throw down and to fight against these other people. Or for some today in in more charismatic Pentecostal circles, they point to this story and say that for Jesus to do anything even today, that we have to bind the strong man. And so you'll hear people in those circles constantly when they pray, they'll say, Satan, we bind you or or forces of evil. We bind you that we have to bind the strong man. But our question is, what's Jesus really communicating here? Is, Is he saying this is something we must do or is he telling us this is something he has already done? Because I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that he's already bound the strong man so that he himself could plunder his treasure. And the treasure of our enemy is the earth and the people of the earth. I believe that Jesus bound him at his temptation. When a man, Jesus, went into the wilderness, into the worst of situations... And conquered him, bound him, doing what the first man, Adam, was unwilling to do in paradise of Eden. Jesus would now do it, making a way for him to begin to plunder the strong man's goods. He bound him at his temptation. He will publicly defeat him on a cross. And finally, he will totally defeat him at the coming of the age, at the entrance of the final kingdom where heaven and earth will collide and sin, sickness, suffering, and death are no more. That's how the story will end. Jesus is making a statement here that I'm not here as a force of hell. 
No, I am here to strip hell itself of its power so that I can rescue what Satan has held captive in creation. It's a reference really even to a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 49 about binding the strong man and setting captives free. Here's what Isaiah wrote. He said, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress You with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. To rescue humanity from Satan, for us to be freed from his dominion, Satan must first be bound, defeated. And Satan's authority and power must be stripped away, and it was at the cross. Jesus said it in John 12. He said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, think of it, the strong man, Satan, shall be cast out, he said. Satan is a defeated foe. I believe that, but he's not, he's not yet a completely powerless one. One day he will be. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. Think about it kind of this way. I referenced Saving Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan earlier. Picture World War II. June 6, 1944, D-Day, Allied forces land on the beaches of Normandy. It takes them three days to establish the beachhead. At great cost and loss of life, the war was won that day. We knew it. Even the Germans knew it. And all of Europe was aware of it. The war was won when we established that place. However, our enemies refused to accept it. It'd be 11 months before all of Europe was liberated from their captors. You could think of it this way. The war was won, but there are battles still to be fought because Hitler would not accept his defeat until he met his end by committing suicide. The reality is Jesus has already won the battle, but our enemy is yet to be cast into hell, which means that you and I still face opposition, but we now can stand and face it with confidence Rather than just giving in under pressure, our confidence that is that God who is for us is greater than he that is against us. Remember, my friends, you are in a battle for sure. But Jesus' point here is, is that he's come as the one with the greatest authority and alone can liberate his people from bondage. In Luke 11, he gives some additional commentary about this moment. What he says here is reiterated for us in Luke with added detail. He said, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him. And overcomes him. He takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus does is he draws a line in the sand that you're a part of one of two kingdoms. You're either for him or against him. And then he rolls right into defining what that line is that determines which kingdom you're a part of, which is I'm sure what you woke up this morning hoping we'd be discussing, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I know it was probably the first thing you thought of this morning. You know, at church today, it'd be really great if we hit some lighthearted things like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world in John 16, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, 
of God's righteousness and of coming judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, to convict the world of sin, my sin, of God's righteousness, so my unrighteousness, his righteousness, and judgment that I deserve because of that. That's the work of God's Spirit. That, that move in my heart leads me to the conclusion that I need a Savior and substitute. So the Spirit then points me towards Jesus. To blaspheme that work of the Spirit, to reject and blow off the Spirit's work in my life, is what the religious leaders are right here doing. They're resisting, refusing, rejecting the work of God's Spirit in Jesus. And people still do this today. Ultimately, the one thing that someone will end up separated from God in hell for is this, is resisting, refusing, rejecting the work of God's spirit today. We might look and go, well, well, lying is what's causing their problems or anger is what's at the beginning of all of their issues. It's, It's bitterness is what's to blame for the separation between them and God or it's their sexual immorality in their heart that's behind their falling from grace. But none of those things will ultimately keep a man or a woman from heaven. Only this one thing, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. One day you will stand before God and each of us will be asked one question. And it's not about our thought life, our sex life, or our prayer life. We're going to be asked, what did you do with Jesus? Did you resist? Did you refuse? Did you reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life who was leading you to your need for Jesus? Understand this, your thought life, your sex life, your prayer life will all be affected by your acceptance of the work of the Spirit in your life. I'm not implying that those things don't matter to God, nor that they shouldn't matter to you. I'm just saying that that there's no sin that's so dark, no mistake so big that God is incapable or unwilling to forgive it. The only thing that will keep you from being forgiven is to blow off the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Hear me. The only thing that will keep you from being forgiven is neither neither Pfizer or Moderna. It's blowing off the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, which is to convict you of sin and reveal your need for a Savior in Jesus. And in the story, he's appealing to the religious leaders because they have not yet found themselves guilty of that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because there is still a chance for them to turn. Because on this side of death, there's always a chance to turn. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to die without repentance. It's to live your life completely and totally rejecting the Spirit's work that's leading you to Jesus. If you die without opening your heart to Jesus, then yes, you are guilty of this, the one thing that no one will be forgiven of. It's, it's a rejection of Jesus in your life. It's dying having never repented and accepted him. Listen, every sin that you have or will or can commit can be forgiven. However, if you refuse the way of forgiveness, there's no possibility of being forgiven. It's the unpardonable thing. And that's both a scriptural view and it's a historic view of what the church has always thought about this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's that if you run from him rather than to him, there's no forgiveness that you'll ever find because it only comes through him. So run to Jesus. The last layer it finishes with is is it just, it points us back to Jesus' own family And you you need to know that Jewish families were very, very close. It was a huge part of Jewish culture to be a part of a family unit. They'd lived together, worked together. There was 
deliberate action, though, in what Jesus does here that would have shocked people and made them gasp when he says, my family out there is looking for me. You need to know this is my family here. It was shocking. In our Western world, even, we read it and think it seems a little rude. But for us in a Western culture, it's normal for us to grow up with our family, but then grow up with friends, develop friendships later in life where those people become closer to us than, the own, our, than our own members of our household or of our family. That's normal, but that's foreign in an ancient world. We think of it as normal. It was anything but that. But that's what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is shocking, it's intentional, it's telling. He's telling us that he's starting a new family where national identity or family ties or a bloodline have nothing to do with it, to do with acceptance in a community or with God. What's it take to be in his family? Remember the Mark and Sandwich. The top is best understood and the the bottom by what's tasted and understood in the middle. You are in and out based upon your acceptance, your humble response to the Spirit's work convicting you in your life of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Your, your acceptance is based on your forgiveness from Jesus. That's it. You're in if you humble yourself and turn to Jesus. He's starting a new family is what it's telling you. And it has nothing to do with biology or family ties. It's been wisely said, God has no grandchildren. And that's true for us today. But why did they see him, these people who came, his family, his brothers and sisters, why did they see him as just Jesus? Because that's the troubling thing, is that Mark's presenting to us that it's possible that you could have so many people determined their response so visceral that they want to destroy Jesus, and other people determined if I could just get to him and be touched by him, my life will never be the same. But then this weird anomaly is his own household who looks at him and says, you're just Jesus to us. In John's gospel, it says even his own brothers don't believe. That's in John chapter 7. It's crazy because in Mark 6, it mentions his four brothers by name. It it talks about how they grew up under the same roof. So you picture it. They would have been there. We'd assume that they would have all been invited. The family would have at that first miracle of Jesus when he at 30 years old is the oldest in the house, the big brother, when he turned water into wine. They would have been there, guests at that wedding. They they would have been there even when Jesus was a young boy in the temple, involved in discussion with the religious leaders. They would have heard and seen the wisdom that he had and how people marveled. They would have heard about how Jesus healed an an official son in John 4 or healed the man on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda in John 5 or fed the 5,000 that's recorded for us in John 6. All of those things are recorded before John 7 when it says his brother still didn't believe. For 30 years they had known him. It wasn't until after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven that it then shifts and says that all of a sudden you find him at the end of the story. It's actually in Acts chapter 1. They're with the disciples of Jesus, worshiping him as a God, no longer seeing him as just Jesus. There's a part of that that's meant to give us hope. Because at this point in the story, they're convinced you're out of your mind. By the end of their story... Their hearts have changed and they're following Jesus because they love him. And for some of us, we have people in our lives who we see their reflection in that story. You're out of your mind. He's just Jesus. Don't give up hope. It could change. But why did they see him as just Jesus? Real quick, because here's the truth. Some of us who have been in church a long time, this is how we've come to see Jesus. They came to see him this way probably because of the stigma. They grew up in a family and in a household with the legitimacy of their eldest brother constantly being questioned. 
And I say that because even when Jesus went back into Nazareth, do you remember what they said to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son, that son of Mary? You'd never refer to someone as being the, the son of the mom, unless maybe dad is dead or unless you're poking fun at the legitimacy of his birth. Yeah, 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 not the son of Joseph, because no one knows who your dad is. Oh, this whole, it's a miracle, teenage girl's pregnant, God did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's as far-fetched then as it would be today. It's maybe the stigma that made them see him as just Jesus, where they're just tired of carrying that with them. Maybe for some of you, that's your hangup. There's this stigma around being a follower of Jesus, of being a crazy Christian that keeps you from seeing him as he truly is or trusting him as he should be trusted or of following him without hesitation or apology as he deserves. Maybe it's the stigma or maybe it's the resentment. A sinful fallen good older brother is annoying enough and hard to live in the same household with. But what about a perfect one? What about a perfect one who's a gifted sibling who you're living in that household? When swapping family stories around the dinner table and they're like, yeah, and it's so-and-so, his brother's birthday. And we remember when you were born, your birth, you know, this, these are the things that happen around the table at a birthday that parents reminisce. Oh, but remember when Jesus was born, there was a star in the sky. There were angels that showed up. <laughs> Sibling rivalry is an unfortunate reality that first rears its head in the very first family that walked the earth. It was Adam and Eve's own sons. One of them lost his life because of it. Maybe it was resentment, not the stigma. And how about you? Are you resentful for what your life has or has not included? Are you so full of resentment that you're unwilling or unable to see him as a good God? Is he now relegated to just Jesus to you? Is there too much resentment or hurt or disappointment or just unmet expectations for you to fully trust him today as more than just Jesus? Maybe it wasn't the stigma. Maybe it wasn't resentment. Maybe it was just familiarity. They grew up so familiar with him. He was the older brother working with dad in the shop. He, he was the one at the dinner table each night with the family. They're the, the one that they though they never saw him lose his temper or, or spew out some colorful language, he was familiar enough that they did see him whack his thumb a few times and yell out in pain. They looked and saw like there was nothing, there was something special about him, something different about him. They never caught him in a lie, but there was so much familiarity, they just got used to seeing him. He was just Jesus to them because they grew up used to seeing him, seeing him in every place that they turned. Does he lackluster Jesus? Is he less than captivating to you because he's just so familiar to you? There's an old saying that's got a lot of mileage on it, but it's true that familiarity breeds contempt. And for some of us who grew up in the church, he's just Jesus to us for that very reason, just because he became so familiar to us. Just a member of the household, just another part of life. Not the amazing one that I drop everything to follow like some of these people. No, no, no. He's the one that some of us would stand in between them and Jesus and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're being unrealistic, taking a need that big to Jesus. Don't you understand? He's just Jesus. There might have been more pain than we ever knew behind Jesus' comment in Matthew 13, where he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. There might have been so much pain in his tone when he said that. Scripture belabors the point that he endured every temptation that we do. And I believe it also makes it clear he experienced every emotion that we feel. 
He embraced the human experience in absolutely every way. He did not insulate or isolate himself from any aspect of it. But in his experience, I wonder what hurt most. Was it the physical agony he went through, the betrayal of a close friend, or the denial and abandonment of those who should have stood by him? Or was it maybe just the disappointment and embarrassment his own family displayed of him? What about in your story? What's the hurt that's hurt the worst? That left the deepest wound because I believe that he'd know what those feel like and I believe he could help you with those moments you're not alone in those moments if you're here and you don't know what you think of Jesus period you've never made a decision about Jesus you need to know do not resist refuse reject the work of God's spirit in your life that's leading you to a savior it is the only way of salvation. If you run from him rather than to him, you'll find no forgiveness through him. But if you're a member of the family of God today, I just ask you, when did he become just Jesus to you? When did it happen? When did you start feeling embarrassed about bringing that need back to him again? When did it start to seem silly that you trusted him to breathe life into what felt lifeless? That dream or their health or your womb or their hard heart. When did he become just Jesus? You know, I want to finish by praying. And so why don't you close your eyes? But it asks you as an expression of faith that he is more than just Jesus. If you realize that maybe in an area of your life, he's become just that. Where you, you did start to feel almost embarrassed for continuing to bring that need back to him. Or you started to feel silly that you trusted him to do the impossible, to breathe life where there was no life. If that's what it's become for you, that he's just Jesus then I'd ask you by faith, as an expression of your faith, then stand to your feet. As an expression to him that Jesus, I will stand because I know that you are not just Jesus, but you've become that. And today that stops. See, for me, as I read this story this week, I realized there's areas in my own life that I found myself echoing the same things I used to think about that boy who ran back to Jesus each week asking him to heal his hand where I was shaking my head going, whoa, 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 don't get ahead of yourself. He's just Jesus. And those were things that I quietly, between he and I, needed to take back to him in faith and say, Jesus, I admit it. I've seen you as only just Jesus, but no more. You are more, far more than that. And so if you'd stand with me. Father, for some of us, today this is where we are at. That life can happen, and whether it's familiarity or the stigma or resentment, whatever it may be, Jesus, we make you into less than you are. You've become just Jesus. Forgive us. You are never just Jesus. You are the great I am. We need to leave seeing you that way, even if we came in seeing you differently. And so, Jesus, we repent of short-selling you. 
We repent of our unbelief. We say to you, Lord, we believe and help. Please, Jesus, help our unbelief. We know that you are more than just Jesus. So we invite you back into those places where we need you to do the miraculous, where we've stopped asking, but today we bring those things back to you again and say, Jesus, step in and heal. Do what only you can in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you worship with us? Amen.